guys. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate you, brother. Okay. Great to be with you guys tonight. Quick question. How many of you love history? Okay. How many of you love American history? Okay. How many of you are familiar with the Battle of Little Bighorn? Good, good. So the Battle of Little Bighorn is one of the most and well-known engagements in American military history against Native Americans. Um, for decades after the battle, George Custer was considered a hero. Uh, his last stand against the forces of the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho tribes. See, modern historians have documented Custer's various mistakes before and during the battle, which led to his decisive, to the decisive victory of the leaders Crazy Horse and Chief Gal. Notably, Custer's most seriously misjudged the number of enemies camped before the Little Bighorn River. He knew this because one of his scouts said, General Custer, there's a lot of people out there. He was like, eh, not a big deal. You see, in his mind, he thought it was an easy win for him. They were savages, I'm not. They don't have the weapons that we do. We are technologically more advanced. And he thought, you know what? Let them be more. Because if there's more and we win, it's a more glorious victory. What did he do? He underestimated the untrained, quote-unquote, unskilled Native American army and lost his life in the mix. So what does that have to do with today's story? Well, today we're going to read about the Sadducees, how they tried to discredit Jesus and his message. And like Custer, the Sadducees were confident that they had the perfect plan, the perfect attack to discredit our great Savior. However, to their great surprise, like Custer's, the Master, the Lord Christ, silenced his critics masterfully and forced them to retreat. Let's read today's passage together in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. The Word of God says, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Amen. So in verses 15 through 46, Matthew is giving an account of three separate occasions where the Jews, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they want to come and try to discredit Jesus and his teachings. 
They want to sabotage his name. The first occasion we went over on Sunday with Mr. Scarborough about Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees' disciples about should we pay taxes or should we not? Another attempt to discredit Jesus, and what does Jesus masterfully answer in verses 21, right there in 22? He says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The second occasion we're going to speak about today, which is this conversation between the Sadducees and Jesus, them trying to get Jesus into what he's going to say about the resurrection. And the next uh, occasion will be taught by Brandon on Sunday. And it's another Pharisee testing him, asking him, who is, what is the greatest commandment? And that conversation will be held, and that study will be held on Sunday morning. So, stay tuned. So in today's outline of the failed sabotage, we're going to see the altered facts of this sabotage, and then we're going to also see the true facts of this sabotage. So the altered facts, we're going to look at the foundation of their argument, of the, of the, of the Sadducees' argument. We're going to look at the explanation of their argument, and then we're going to see their quote-unquote trap, the Sadducees' trap. Then we're going to move to the true facts, and Jesus gives a foundation for those facts. He gives an explanation to the facts, and then he's going to explain the piercing truth. He's going he's to say it, and that is going to cause them to be silent. The universal theme that the good Lord wants us to focus on as we study this text, that was meant for the audience when Matthew was writing it to the Jews in Rome, and that is meant for us today, that the Holy Spirit knew that we would read this today and learn about it today is this. Trust in Jesus as king because he is the truth and eternal ruler. Trust in Jesus as king because he is the truth and eternal ruler. Let's look at the first part of the failed sabotage from the Sadducees. And we're going to discuss the altered facts. And these altered facts begin with a foundation. And let's read it in verse 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. On that day, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next as of kin shall marry his wife, sorry, and raise up children for his brother. So we start with verse 23, On that day. So Jesus, Matthew is referring to on that very same day, that Jesus had the conversation, debate with the Pharisees concerning if they should pay taxes or not. This happens later on, on that day. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Who were the Sadducees? I think it's important that we discuss this and understand who were the Sadducees. Who are asking Jesus this question? Why are they asking this question? So the Sadducees, they made up most of the Jewish ruling religious political class called the Sanhedrin. They were aristocrats. They had a lot of influence, a lot of money, while the Pharisees were considered more like the common middle-class folk. They were aristocrats. Why? Because they actually backed the Roman Empire. They backed it up because the Romans allowed them to be in control of the monies of... The Romans allowed them to have their secret police, their secret kind of bodyguard protection. And also, within their work in this political Sanhedrin, they were in charge of the monies that circulated through the temple. 
they were in charge of, you know, when people were in the sacrifice and paid for the dove and, and, the, and the goats and all that, they were in control of that money. They were also known for rejecting the spiritual and the supernatural. They rejected ideas of angels, spirits, demons, and they were totally against the resurrection. How do I know this? Well, if you look, go to, you don't have to go there, you can just read it on, on your screen. In Acts chapters 23, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, But perceiving that, Luke writes, But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. Also, the Sadducees are pretty much not involved in Jesus' ministry up until now. Why? The commentator writes, Jesus is cleansing the temple, however, immediately got their attention. Because the merchants and, merchants and money changers he drove out of the court of the Gentiles were the financial mainstay of Sadducee power. Jesus had now invaded their territory with a vengeance, disrupting their operation at the most lucrative time of the year when all the Passover offerings and sacrifices were made. Jesus' acclamation, also as the son of David during his triumphal entry, also no doubt had them worried because any claim to kingship would evoke immediate and harsh repression by the Romans. They were friends with the Romans, therefore they didn't care up until this point where Jesus now affects their pockets and affects their position of power because now they're talking of a king and, you know, the Romans are here. King is not going to be good for us in our position. So these were the Sadducees, okay? Ruling political elite class of, of Israel. Now, this conversation is going to specify and be specific to one concern, was, which is the resurrection, okay? Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or any type of resurrection at all. Now, when we read in verse... On that day, some Sadducees, parentheses, who say there is no resurrection. Matthew wants to be clear. He wants the reader to know. The, Jew, the Jewish reader in Rome to know that these were Sadducees. And what do Sadducees believe? No resurrection. Remember that. This is important. This is what Matthew is trying to say. And to us to understand why this argument is so important for the Sadducees. Now, what's interesting is we just read in Acts that Paul said he mentioned resurrection and there was a dissension. There was a fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they did not believe in the same things. You can think of the Sadducees were more of a purist in the sense of they only followed the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and they, they validated that and they, they were okay with that. They actually hated all the man-made traditions of the most of, of the man-made traditions from the Pharisees. So here you are, two opposite political parties working together as one to discredit Jesus. The Greek used for resurrection in this verse, deals with specifically Judgment Day. Deals with Judgment Day. So what do these Sadducees do? 
They came to Jesus and questioned him. The Greek word used for came means coming with the intention of asking something. So they knew what they were coming. They had an agenda. They knew what they wanted to say. It's not like, okay, let me go and see what's going on. Let me hear the message. Let me hear Jesus out. And maybe I'll have an important question to ask. No, they came knowing what they were to do. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos of Q&As of political commentators or when they're at a university and people start coming and asking them questions? You immediately know there's certain people that ask a question and they're actually truly asking the question genuine heart. I'm going to ponder. Maybe I'll change my mind. And there's others that just go without a question, just saying a statement. This is what I believe, and you're not going to change who I am, and I just want to tell you because you're wrong. Basically, that's what the Sadducees are doing here. This is the, the Greek word for Cain. They didn't want to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. So they already came with their agenda, and they were going to accomplish their goal. What was their goal? It's back in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he would say, in what he said. So see, this is the second attempt to discredit Jesus and his teaching in this section. And this occurred many times before as well, and we're going to look at it on Sunday as well. So what did they ask him? What did these Sadducees ask him? Asking, they said, Teacher, Moses said, in verse 24, If a man dies, we're still in the foundation, by the way. If a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. He starts, Matthew, the Pharisees, the Sadducees come and say, Teacher. Teacher refers to a term of respect, a term where a, a disciple will call his mentor teacher. But do you really think this is the case? Do, you, do the Sadducees, are they pure in heart, really coming and asking the question out of purity and out of real curiosity? No, we see that that's not true. We saw that on Sunday. They were spies within the Pharisees. They were spies that came and were saying the right things, talking the right things to say their truth, to try to catch Jesus in something, but it wasn't genuine. Same here. That teacher is not genuine. And what do they say? Teacher, Moses said. They think they're smart, and, and, and they're formulating their argument pretty well, okay? They're, they're doing it. Like, let's, let's go against Christ. Let's go against his message. We got a great opportunity, a great explanation. Let's see if we can get him. So he says, Moses said. So why do you think they're referencing Moses? He's one of the most influential leaders that Israel has ever had and ever will have, okay? Well, John the Baptist, he's greater than Moses, but according to Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, the Bible says, since that time... No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Moses is pretty big. Moses has a lot of authority. So if they're going to bring some authority into this conversation to win a debate or argument, it's going to be Moses. Moses said... Why do they also mention Moses? As I told you before, there were, the, there were some commentators that said that not all Sadducees um, thought that just the Torah was the Word of God. The majority of them thought that the Torah, only the first five books, were the Word of God. And the other prophets, they, were, they weren't as inspired as the Torah. So Jesus, so they come to Jesus saying, look, this is what we believe. That's why we're quoting Moses from the Torah. Torah is important to us, and we're going to quote Moses, not Isaiah, not Samuel, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel. We're going to quote Moses.
And another reason why they quote Moses is because Moses specifically says many times throughout the entire first five books of the Bible, remember to what? To keep the law of God. To keep his statutes. To store his commandments in your heart. To write them on your doorpost. To talk them out day and night. Deuteronomy 6, 1-3. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. That you may not that you may do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So the, the Sadducees were like, if we can get Jesus to contradict this idea of resurrection, this idea of the leveret marriage, we're gonna, he, he contradicts Moses, we got him. Plan we, is successful. We're doing it. That's why Moses, they, that's why they quote Moses, because he's that influential. And if you discredit Moses, you discredit your, as yourself. Uh, the person discredited you Moses is not going to look good. And he's going to lose authority before the people. So we continue in the verses as if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. So the Sadducees are referencing Deuteronomy chapter 9 verses 5 through 10. Everyone open your Bibles. And it's all, well they should be open already in Matthew. But go to Deuteronomy chapter 9 verses 5 through 10 real quick. up there in the in the slide if you need the reference. So that this is still part of the foundation of their argument. The Sadducees came, they said Moses, he said this, this is what they're referencing. Deuteronomy twenty five verses five through ten. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband, brother, to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, and this brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of all the, of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal was removed. It's pretty shameful for a brother not to do this. Okay? This is part of the Mosaic law. Mosaic law, it's now no longer, we're not no longer under this law, so don't worry about it, guys. I know some of you are kind of like worried there. So, if the brother didn't obey this and do this willingly, it was shameful for him. And 
this levirate marriage is not just a Moses thing. This is something that the sons of Jacob were practicing already. This is something that was common for them. We see this in Genesis 38, where Reuben's uh, first son dies, and then his brother, his youngest, so Reuben has children, so Reuben's eldest son dies, so then the other children, the other child of Reuben has to do his duty, he does it, then he dies, so then Reuben's like, I don't want any of my children dying, I set it away, and if you want to discuss this, go ahead and talk to your parents about it. G- Genesis 38. It's a great passage for you guys to talk to your parents about. Go to the Shepherd Conference uh, website, and they have a great sermon on it to help you and your parents. Parents, if you're listening, Shepherd's Conference website, it'll, it'll do you the favor. Children here can be translated as both male and females because if the father died and had no sons or daughters, then they would have to go to the next kid. But if he had daughters it would be okay. Because in Numbers 27 through 27, there's this argument. Daughters were like, hey, our fathers died. How are we, why are we going to pay for the sins that we didn't commit? Moses went to the el- and Moses went to God, and God said they're right. So inheritance didn't go to his son or daughter. So this is somebody who doesn't have any children at all. This has to occur. The Greek for the next of kin is to intermarry within. To intermarry within of the same ethnic, social, or family group. And we see this practice in scripture this is not something that is not in scripture we've seen this where do we see it? anybody want to give it a shot where else where do we see this take place i'll give you a hint perez and no it's not a cuban last name everyone from cuba is perez perez ruth ruth Chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witness today that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Shilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court or from his birthplace. You are witness today. So this is something biblical. This is something that the Sadducees could use and have authority. They're like, hey, this is not just something that Moses said. We actually see this in the book of Ruth, even though they wouldn't use Ruth because it's not part of the Torah. But still, for your purpose sake, this is something that did happen in Scripture other than Deuteronomy. So now that the Sadducees have established their foundation, they will bring forth a complicated case to see Jesus' opinion, to see what he's going to say about it. All right? So we got the foundation. The Sadducees come in. This is the foundation of our argument. This is how we're going to get you. They're not saying it to Jesus, but they're thinking it. And now they're going to say, give their, the scenario. Verse 25 through 27. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. Also, also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. Okay, so all of them died, eventually. The, the Sadducees basically said, look, Jesus, we have a case here. How would you, what would you do with this? How, how do you interpret the results of this, right? So what happens? The firstborn dies. Then his younger brother comes and marries his wife. He dies. Then his other younger brother comes. And so all seven die. I don't know if the wife put poison somewhere. I don't know, but they're dead. Now, think of it this way. The Sadducees, they're, they're coming in boastful and prideful. 
Why do I say this? The exaggeration of the story. It's kind of like they're making their point by exaggerating, saying, look, I, I can just say this is a simple story, but I'm going to exaggerate it so that you can see how ridiculous the idea of a resurrection really is. Because, come on, you don't know? Look at this. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to say? There's nothing you can say. We won. We got it. It's in the bank. That's the attitude of the Sadducees. See, again, if Jesus would discredit the law, it would be significant to their cause. They would win. He would be sabotaged. No one would believe. They would try to work around it, which they did anyways. It didn't stop. Nothing stopped. The Church of Christ will it will continue. It won't prevail. It, 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 the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So nothing that they can do or don't do. But still, they, in their power, they want to discredit Jesus. And that's what they're trying to do. So, this now leads to the trap. So they explain. They, this is the foundation. This is what Moses said. This is the scenario. What do you think? And now the trap. Here's where, okay, Jesus, we're going to get you with this one. In verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. This was the moment. Just imagine the smirk on their face. Imagine their arrogance, their proud demeanor, using scripture. Wow, so holy to win this argument before Christ. Here, resurrection, again, the Greek for resurrection here means judgment, the eternal state. This is the end time resurrection. The Greek for therefore here means consequently. So in the resurrection, consequently, whose wife of the seven will she be? And think about it, from a human pr perspective, from a Sadducee perspective, seems like a good idea. It seems like a, a, a logical debate, a logical argument. Marriage is sacred. We know that. God hates divorce, period. We know that it's sacred to the Lord. You need one man, one woman. It's to death do you apart, right? We know that when Adam and Eve were created in the perfect world, they were told, multiply, you know, rule over the earth. So in their minds, like, why would it be different in the eternal state? Why would it be different in heaven? So, regardless of what they think or where their human knowledge or logic takes them, it's not authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. And the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we don't know where the Sadducees came with the idea that marriage will still be present in the eternal state. We don't know where they got that or where they're trying to get Jesus in and trapping him with it. But what we do know is what? They're trying to sabotage his message, and they'll do whatever it takes, even if it's to make an idea like this seem logical in front of the crowd. So, we are left to wonder, why? Why did they want to discredit our Savior? Why is this a constant theme throughout the Gospels? Why do the Sadducees and the Pharisees continuously want to test Christ and trap Him and discredit Him and sabotage Him? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us the answer. John chapter 11, verses 47 through 48. This is after He resurrects Lazarus 
right? The miraculous, after four days of Lazarus being dead, he resurrects him and the people are talking. That's why, remember, the triumphal entry, people are, the buzz is there. It's like, wow, he resurrected Christ. And, and this got to the ears of the Pharisees. And what did they say? Verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? By the way, chief priests are also uh, Sanhedrin, and they're also Sadducees, all right? Caiaphas, the person who sentenced Christ to death, he was a uh, Sadducee, okay? So these are Sadducees and Pharisees convened a council together. What are we doing? And, and we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were trying to discredit him so they could maintain their place in society. They wanted to be Lord. They didn't want to be lorded over. They were trying to find a way to alter Scripture to believe in God, that the, to believe in the way they wanted to believe in God, not according to the truth of what God says to believe in Him. They knew the abuse that they were doing and did not want to give that up. And we're going to study this abuse in chapter 23 where Jesus goes to the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. There's eight of them. And guess what? What idea exemplifies their selfish desire to serve their own kingdom and to be their own Lord? What idea do you think exemplifies this? Anybody want to give it a shot? I mean, it's the main word that we're talking about again and again and again. Anybody want to try? Anybody? Lawson? The question is, if I'm talking about the Sadducees, and we're saying that they're, they want their place in society, they want to serve their own kingdom, they want to be their own lord, they don't want to be lorded over, what's the best argument that I can give you that's showing in my heart, is revealing in my heart what's really there? What would it be? Okay. And in this case, the resurrection. There is no resurrection. Well, how does that prove the point that their heart, that, that there are issues in their heart of wanting to be Lord, of wanting to do what they want? How does that prove that if there's no resurrection? Anybody? If there's no afterlife, then what I do in this life means what? So what does that imply? Think about it for a second. If for some reason you say there is no heaven, there is no hell, I'm leaving this life, what are you going to do? Do whatever your heart desires because you become God. Because you become Lord of your life. And there's no accountability whatsoever because there is no resurrection. So I can do as I please and there's no consequence to it. Even God, in His grace and His mercy, restrains evil from humanity. He puts a conscience in our lives, everyone's lives, whether you are a believer or non-believer. Acts 2, 14 and 15 says that. That even though they didn't know the law or study the law, it was ingrained in their hearts. They knew what was good and evil. Because the Lord allows that to happen. And that's how He reveals Himself to creation. Through our conscience. It doesn't save us. It's not salvific. It's general. But guess what? Even that restrains evil. Now imagine that human that doesn't have Christ, 
that is sustained by God's grace till after the Shemimu, and he's just like, you know what? There's no heaven, there's no hell. There is no right, there is no wrong. Freedom. Freedom. Free pass to live as they please. No worries about any type of consequences. I'm accountable to no one. This is the idea simple for them. No afterlife, no consequences. No Lord, I am the Lord, I serve my kingdom, and I do as I please. Now let's take a moment and pause here. Because we know what we, try, what we tend to do when we read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What do we tend to do when we read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees? I can't believe him. Ah, they don't ever be me. I've never done that. Really? Let's look at it a bit. See, in the same way the Sadducees manipulated facts to justify their sinful desires and behaviors, so do we as believers as well. Sometimes as believers, majority as unbelievers. We can fall into the sin of picking and choosing what Bible verses can go with what I want to go with. As a believer, what is something that you can struggle with to try to fit Scripture to, to, to a worldview that you hold? Election? That's a big one. Right? The truth is there in Scripture. And you have this whole debate between Armenians and Calvinists. And there are, there are many brothers that are Christian, and I'm not saying no. But it's something where you can pick and choose and be like, oh, I really, because of my human logic, doesn't make sense. So I have to find a way to make it work. When Scripture is clear and says, don't find a way, this is the truth, you don't have the truth. What about for an unbeliever? Or somebody who claims to be a Christian and they're really not, saying, well, I can live with my boyfriend and girlfriend and not be married. There's no, there's no, that's, that's so antiquated. Or marrying an unbeliever because you think you're going to bring them to Christ. No, they're going to come to Christ because of me. I'm going I'm to do it. While the Bible says you will not have unequal, you will not be unequally yoked. Not believing in the spiritual leadership of the house to be the father. Oh, no, that's a, the patriarch society. That's them, you know. That's not something that we should abide to now. Well, the Bible is clear. That men are to leave their wives with love. And lead them in spiritual things, but to be the head of the house, to be the spiritual leader of you and, the, and, the, and the, your future wives and your children. That's something that God's going to demand of us, not your wives or not your moms, you. Not adhering to the created order for human sexuality. God is clear. We talked about this. He created them male and female. And marriage is between a male and a female. It's clear. Success starts saying, well, Leviticus 18, it's only directed towards the pagan nations, but it's not really universal. No, no. You see, people can start doing that, and that's dangerous. Not obeying government or laws that are not telling you to sin against God blatantly, but you just don't like them, so you're not going to do them. Or maybe praying for your political leaders because you didn't vote them in. And you, you want to try to find some sort of scripture that can like justify your desire and your logic. And that's not how it works. We can also have Sadducee tendencies in our hearts. We've got to check those. Take them to Scripture. See what, what does God say about all these issues. And the Bible, guess what? It's clear in the majority of things. And when it's not clear, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Don't ever think that your human reason or logic will go above Scripture. Don't commit that mistake. Scripture Ultimate authority goes first. This is dangerous. Why? Because then anything in the Bible can be false if we say it to be false. Then as a believer, you can't you can decide what you want or want you can't decide what you want and want to do about, against with the Bible. You can't do that. It doesn't that's not your authority. 
You can't say, I'm going to pick this, and I'm not going to pick that. No, it's all together. It's a package. It's one. All 66 books are inspired. Every verse, every period, every comma is inspired by God. It's the Word of God. It's truth. It comes together, all of it. Why do you think the theme of the lesson is trust in Jesus as King because He is the truth and eternal ruler? He is the truth. An eternal ruler. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are wrong always. Even when it doesn't make sense in our finite minds. The word is truth. So let's go ahead and see how Jesus responds with this glorious truth of God's word. And we go to the second part of this failed sabotage, the glorious truth of God's word. And the glorious truth of God's word also, Jesus has a foundation. Let's read that foundation in verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. The Greek word for but is and. And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Mistaken in the Greek means to be misled, deceived, to be or become misled from a proper belief or course of action. Not understanding in the Greek means not knowing the nature or character of. So basically they were misled and did not know the nature or character of scriptures and they did not know the nature or character of the power of God. He says they're wrong based on Old Testament passages that clearly talk about a resurrection and of God's power to do so. God is powerful enough to raise the dead because He is God. He can do that and only He can. Scriptures like Job 19, 25-26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Psalm 16, 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there is pleasure forever. Misunderstanding the power of God to resurrect the dead to life. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You know why he can say with full authority, you are mistaken, you misunderstood. You know why he can say that? Because he is the truth. He is the standard. He cannot lie. Romans 3, 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. He is the ultimate standard of what is true. He says what is wrong and what is right. And if he said that they're wrong, guess what? That's enough foundation for me. <laughs> they're wrong. But he doesn't stay there. He sets this foundation, and then he explains why they're wrong. And he doesn't use scripture that they might say, well, that's not true scripture. He uses scripture that every Sadducee would know from the moment they're born till they die. 
he uses a familiar scripture as John 3.16 is for us. Before that, he explains, and he goes into the explanation now. He lays the foundation. What's the foundation? You're wrong. Why? Because I say, why? Because I'm the truth. Now, let me explain to you why you're wrong. For in the resurrection, verse 30, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For in the resurrection here means because. Because in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. As mentioned earlier, here the, the Greek word for resurrection again means the ends of times. When humanity is restored to life and body, men and women will not marry, nor they will be given into marriage. Jesus is saying that there's no need for marriage in heaven. We will be like angels, and angels do not marry in heaven. Why? Because Jesus says in a parallel passage, this is a concept of this age, and not a concept of the heavenly age. In verse 20, Luke 20, verses 34 to 36, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... And the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Okay, so you can imagine the Sadducees thinking, like, under what authority? Like, who is he that can tell us that we're wrong? And what does he know about heaven? <laughs> Jesus delivers his final statement, and this statement of truth will pierce to the very depths of their souls, and not only then, but ours today. The piercing truth to culminate his argument, his foundation, he explains, and now he's going to bring the hammer. He's going to bring God's powerful word and change many lives, change your lives, change mine. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The but regarding the resurrection, it says and. And regarding the resurrection of the dead. Regarding here means concerning. And concerning the resurrection of the dead. In this particular case, the, word, the Greek word for resurrection is actually coming from death to life now. Like the power of actually being dead and being brought to life. Not in the sense of a spiritual resurrection, but of a physical resurrection. And he says... Have you not read? Have you not read? The commentator stated that this line was seen as a rebuke. It's like, you're a Sadducee. You should know better. You're coming at me with Moses and what he said, and you haven't read this? Here, you know, the, the Sadducee is giving all this, you know, talk to Jesus and all this great explanation, this great scenario, and this great truth of what Moses said, and they haven't even read? Have you not read this? Their sabotaging plan fails miserably with a simple argument, more embarrassing than the unrealistic scenario to catch Jesus. Well, he does not leave it there. He, he continues to push the dagger. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Whew. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I'm quoting the Torah, Sadducee, the one that you so say is only inspired. I'm not quoting Isaiah. I'm not quoting Ezekiel. I'm quoting... The Torah. I'm quoting Exodus. This is something transcendent here, guys, and I want you to think this and think about this. What Jesus is doing here as well 
He's actually affirming the Old Testament as the Word of God. How does he do this? This is important because Christ said that he was God. John 10, 30. He says, I am God. His resurrection proved that he is God, Romans 1, 4. Why? Because only God can defeat death. Therefore, everything that he said would be true because if he said that I'm going to die and resurrect, that's truth. Then everything else that Jesus said in, on, his, on this earth is true. Including this passage saying, have you not read what God has spoken? Meaning every part of the Old Testament is God's word. So we can be sure that God created the world in seven literal days because Jesus said it's true. We can believe that Moses opened the Red Sea because Jesus said it was true. We can believe that Elijah went into the chariots of fire with horses because we believe that God says because Jesus said it's true. He affirms the Old Testament. So what did he affirm it with? What did God say? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is referencing Exodus 3.6. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. So you see, Jesus uses the same Torah that the Sadducees are referencing to him. He uses the same book where they're getting their argument from. He backfires at this. And they're so blind. And this is so sad. You see? I had to. Where's Joel? What does he say? What does he say? He is not... He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus explained this after referencing Exodus 3, 6, and silences critics masterfully. For there has to be a resurrection. Why? Commentator says, God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep his promises to them that he will be their God. Promises that God made for His people are eternal. Therefore, there has to be a resurrection. Verse 33, When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. The Greek for astonished here means to be utterly amazed. To be or become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. That's astonished. If I had to say, think of like when you look at these videos on YouTube or on the internet when Somebody gets roasted, and all of a sudden, the whole crowd goes, oh, my, and everything goes crazy. Type of that. Like, this is crazy. Okay? That's the only example I can come up with. Now, it was so, it was so astonishing that look at what Luke says. Some of the, in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 39 through 40 in the parallel passage, some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. The Sadducees thought they could put God in a box. And we know that we can't. Let's come back to the theme of what Scripture is teaching us today. Trust in Jesus as King because he is truth and the eternal ruler. We see that he is truth because we just read the word. And he is true 
But he is also ruler. He is telling you today, he's telling me and he's telling you, there will be a resurrection. There will be an afterlife. And with that, there also will be judgment. He is Lord. He will judge us eternally for our actions. As we conclude, how do we apply this text to our life? There's four applications that I want to go over with you quickly. The first one is praise the eternal king for being the truth. So many people live their lives oblivious to the truth of God. They have no purpose. They don't know where evil or good comes from. They don't have hope for the future. That is not our problem. That is theirs. We have hope in Christ. We should praise him for that. That all the answers to our questions are found in his word. If you just study, they're there. Application number two. Bow to the king. Bow to the king. Matthew wrote to the Jews in Rome, and he's trying to convince us today that Jesus is king. In this section, he's screaming to the reader, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't want to lord over yourself. It won't work. The Sadducees tried. The Pharisees tried. You can't escape it. Christ is telling us how you... How can we deny the truth in Scripture? He is the God of the living. Stop believing in your own Christ and living your own type of Christianity. God is the truth, and He says that He is powerful enough to resurrect the dead. Therefore, there will be a resurrection. The question is, will you stand before a holy God? How will you stand before this holy God? Guilty as Lord of your own life? Or will you stand in the righteousness of Christ, which he offers to you as long as you repent and believe? The third point of application, submit to the word of God. Submit to the word of God. The word of God is truth. All scripture is inspired by God. His divine power has granted all things pertaining life and godliness. Everything that we would ever need in this world is in Scripture. And the things that are not as clear, it's not God's fault. It's our finite minds. Read Scripture within context. Study clear passages that can make this unclear passage more clear. And if at the end there's still not a concrete answer, the, the secret things are left for the Lord. With enough study, you can do it. Look. Dusty just preached over Hebrews 6. That's pretty, pretty intense. A lot of debate on over Hebrews 6, but it was clear. The Bible doesn't lie. You just follow the systematic approach of putting everything together. It's there. The Word of God is true. Believe it. And lastly, praise God for His plan for salvation. Guys, judgment is coming. There's no escaping it. As much as you can try to ignore it, it's coming. You will die one day and you will face God. And you're either going to be innocent or you're going to be guilty. You're guilty if you want to be your own Lord. Continue living life like you want it. Don't be lorded over. Don't have anybody. Don't have Christ as your Lord. It's fine. Live however you want. But know that there's a consequence. Know that it's, you can say in your mind it's fine, but really it's eternally damning to you. Or you can be innocent. And how, do you, how are you innocent? By believing in the gospel. What is the gospel? God, creator of everything. 
He owns everything. He makes the rules. He says we are to be perfect. As he is perfect, then, guess what? We all fail. Mankind sinned against the Lord. We're sinners. From the day we're born to the day we die. There's unrighteous, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And good deeds won't save you. They won't. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We cannot save ourselves. Christ. He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect Savior. He lived a life that you and me could never live. He stored up all that righteousness so that when God sees us, He sees Him. He died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and He's alive today in heaven. And if you call out for salvation, He is willing to forgive you. Your choice. What will you do with this truth? Will you repent and believe? Or will you continue to be the Lord of your own life? The resurrection is real. Truth says it. The scripture says it. God says it. There's no escaping it. Let's pray. Glorious Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you because we have truth from Genesis to Revelation. We have all that we need pertaining life and godliness in this book. You have spoken to us. You gave us 66 books of your precious infinite, powerful words to guide our lives, to answer our questions, to reveal yourself to us through your word. Thank you for your precious word. Let us always meditate on it. Let us always read it. Let us have joy in reading it. Let us meditate on it day and night. Thank you for being king. Thank you because you will rule forever. And you, will, you are a just God. And the wrong that people did and have done will pay for it because you are a just and holy God. But you also are a loving God that offers salvation to those who repent and believe. And if there's anyone here, Lord, please hear them out. Please open their eyes so they can see themselves as the sinners that they are in need of a Savior, a perfect Savior that is you. Thank you, God. And as we continue to study and meditate on your word, that you can be with us through your word speaking to us. In your name we pray. Amen.